G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. All right, folks, grab your hat and don't forget your whip because we are about to embark on an adventure that would make Indiana Jones jealous. For thousands of years, people have searched for the Garden of Eden. Today, we're going to join the search and in the first part of our series on the location of Eden, We'll consider some interesting candidates for its possible location. Yeah, that's right, Chris. We're going to be searching everywhere from Egypt to Anatolia to see if we can find the Garden of Eden. I've assembled a crack team of geologists, archaeologists, scholars, scientists, and ordinary hacks with lots of money to help us settle the debate once and for all and locate the place where, back in the days before the flood, Adam walked with God in the Garden of Eden. And since none of them could be here, you're stuck with me. Nothing else has fascinated both archaeologists and theologians alike more than the identity of the location of man's paradise lost, the Garden of Eden. Throughout history, the idea of a paradise was a common theme in almost all ancient cultures. The Sumerians called it Dilmun, commonly identified as the modern-day island of Bahrain. The Greeks called it the Garden of the Hesperides. The idea was not a unique one to the biblical authors, However, the book of Genesis does provide us with the most details, albeit vague, to its location. What was Eden, and where was it located? We'll need to dive through the ancient sources at our disposal so that we may decipher the enigma that is Eden. It's a critical solution, and the East Coast got the blues. It's a massive confusion, like the lies they sell to you. Sorry, I'm doing a bit of Guns and Roses there. Garden of Eden, great song. To get us off on the right foot here... I'm going to read the geographical information that we get from Genesis 2 concerning the Garden of Eden. Then we'll look at some locations and see whether or not they meet the biblical criteria. This is Genesis 2 verses 8 to 14 from the CSB. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bdellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. All right, so that's the end of our reading. No one really knows for sure where the Garden of Eden was or is now. After the Great Deluge, there may have been tremendous upheavals and downdrafts. Riverbeds shifted and enormous deposits of silt, rocks, uprooted trees and flood debris could have changed the geography of the area. It's possible that the rivers Pishon and Gihon could have disappeared after the flood. The sea level and shorelines have changed too. These possibilities are all on the table, but they're going to depend greatly on your opinion of what exactly was the nature of that flood. And I hate to spoil it for you, but we're not going to get into that one today. There's no consensus on the exact geographical location of the Garden of Eden, but several sites have been suggested. Archaeologist David Roll claims to have located the site in a lush valley beneath an extinct volcano in Iran. Others have suggested it lies under the waters of the Persian Gulf. Latter-day Saints Apostle John A. Whitstow wrote that the Garden of Eden was actually in Jackson County, Missouri, USA. I'm not even going to entertain that possibility. But uh, let's look at some genuine contenders, some of which are going to be fairly standard for this discussion. And we'll start 
with Egypt. Having just heard that, you might be surprised the first place we're going to look is Egypt. And one of the major reasons that Egypt is even considered as a candidate is because of verse 10 in our reading, which speaks of a river that divides to become the source of four rivers. And you can look anywhere you like throughout the lands of the Bible. And you will not find any river that divides into four separate rivers unless you consider the Nile Delta. The Nile has only two major branches today, but back in antiquity, it had four. Now, arguing against the Nile is the fact that most translations of the Bible feature the names of well-known rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, which are clearly not anywhere near the Nile Delta. But the Hebrew text does not use these names. In the Hebrew text, we have the Chidekel and the Parat. And some would argue that these rivers actually favour an Egyptian location rather than one in Mesopotamia. The names of these rivers are problematic throughout the discussion of the location of Eden, regardless of what your candidate might be, and nowhere is this more evident than when we read the account provided by Josephus in the first century. Josephus says of Eden, Now the garden was watered by one river, which ran round about the whole earth and was parted into four branches. This is from his Antiquities, uh, chapter 1. The four branches he goes on to mention are then identified as being, get this, the Ganges, the Euphrates, the Tigris, and the Nile. And Josephus should have had quite reliable records to draw from, given that he wrote in the Second Temple period and had access to the same scriptures that Christ and the Apostles would have read. So how on earth did he get the Ganges and the Nile out of a text that features neither of the two, according to our modern version of the scriptures? It seems as though Josephus just grabbed the names of the four biggest rivers in the known world and threw them in his book for dramatic effect. But as I mentioned earlier, there is no other river system in the Near East where a single river passes through a lush green oasis and then divides into four rivers. That's the Nile Delta. So is there anything else that supports the location of Eden being in Egypt? Some scholars have noted that the term Eden could have been originally written as Aden. There actually was a garden of Aden, or Aten, located in Middle Egypt. The garden was established by Pharaoh Akhenaten for his god, Aten. And it gets better because the name for Aten can also be spelt as Aden. In addition, the god Aten was spelt using the reed glyph, which is the equivalent in Egypt of the Hebrew Ayin, or the E. So you could say Aten as Aten or Eten, and as Iden or Eden. The similarity here is beginning to look interesting. Furthermore, if we spell the name of the Egyptian Eden or Eden with an Aleph instead of an Ayan, then we might well derive a word like Aton or Adon, which just happens to be very close to one of the many names for the God of Israel. Look in Joshua 3.11 as an example, Adonai appears as a title of God almost 450 times in the Hebrew Bible. Scholars have also pointed out that throughout the history of polytheistic Egypt, it was considered heretical to be a monotheist. And yet, in the time of Akhenaten, the god Aten was considered to be the singular god. Akhenaten was later written out of Egyptian history. Some would argue that this means that the god of Israelite monotheism in Egypt had the same name as the god of Pharaoh Akhenaten's monotheism in Egypt. Coincidence? The Israelites were from Egypt, not Babylon. And so any absorption of language and theology by the Israelites would have naturally had an Egyptian flavor, according to this argument. And since the Israelites apparently left Egypt just after the time of Pharaoh Akhenaten, or not, depending on which chronology you follow, 
And since the Israelites were among the first monotheists, just like Pharaoh Akhenaten, can we suggest that they might have picked up some Artanist influences while in Egypt, including one of the many names for God? So if the biblical Eden, Aden, was connected with Akhenaten's god Aten, also Aden or Eden, then it's possible that the Garden of Eden was based upon Akhenaten's Garden of Eden, the sumptuous paradise garden dedicated to the god Aten at Amana. So when Genesis says that Eden lay to the east, it may have been relative to the Nile, because Amana and its Garden of Eden, or Aten, did indeed reside on the east bank of the Nile. Another thread that draws this proposal together comes from an account of the origins of the garden itself. Manetho, the 3rd century BC Egyptian historian, said of a similar location that the king assembled all those in Egypt whose bodies were wasted by disease. They numbered 80,000 persons. These he cast into the stone quarries to the east of the Nile, there to work segregated from the rest of the Egyptians. Among them, Manetho adds, there were some of the learned priests who had been attacked by leprosy. But a critical reading of this text suggests that Manetho did not want to directly record who these people really were. In reality, the maimed priests and lepers were the Artanists of Pharaoh Akhenaten, the heretic pharaoh who had been deleted from history, and they were being exiled to a barren location in Middle Egypt that would become known as Amana. Manetho describes these stone quarries to the east of the Nile because Amana was on the east bank of the Nile, and it's not hard to imagine it would have resembled a stone quarry in the early stages of construction. So what we appear to have here is multiple similarities between Adam's Garden of Eden and Akhenaten's Garden of Eden. We have a river divided into four heads. We have an eastward location of a garden. We have the similarity of the names Aten, Arden, Eden, and Adonai. We have the religious similarity in that Akhenaten was a monotheist and Israel were also monotheistic. We have the fact that Israel came out of Egypt and received the law right after their time in Egypt, so they were undoubtedly steeped in Egyptian culture and religion and were familiar with the Nile region. And we have ancient historians aware of these traditions and offering support for them. So on this view, the Eden account in scripture is a repurposed Egyptian scenario where the God of Israel is given primacy and his name is changed from Adonai to Yahweh. But it's not without its problems. First and foremost, we have the problem of names. Nobody has really offered a satisfying explanation that overlays the names listed in the scriptures against the tributaries of the Nile. And while there is similarity between the names Aten and Adonai, there really is no responsible way of getting from one to the other etymologically. You'd have to butcher either the Egyptian or the Hebrew or both. And the same goes for Aden versus Eden. Correlation doesn't equal causation. And monotheism in two different groups, regardless of a shared context, doesn't mean they have the same god. As for the context, we can't be sure that Akhenaten actually was the pharaoh at the time of the Exodus anyway. And that leads us to timing. The claim that Manetho is describing the construction of a garden in honour of Aten, using slave labourers who were allegedly forced into slavery as punishment for their monotheistic worship of Aten, is utterly incoherent. If Aten worship is condemned at the time, why are they building a garden to honour him? It doesn't make any sense. And then you've got Josephus. If the Nile is one of the four rivers then what is the main river that it breaks off from? Isn't the whole thing the Nile? Why is he even referencing the Ganges? That's in India, for goodness sake. 
Lost in the Garden of Eden, said we're lost in the Garden of Eden, and there's no one's gonna believe this, but we're lost in the Garden of Eden. I can tell now why you drive a forklift for a living. I really regret telling you that you could sing last week. Not a Guns N' Roses fan? Definitely not. Moving along, what are we looking at next? Okay, we'll turn our attention to Babylon now and see if we get any closer to the location of Eden. Certainly Babylon enjoys a bigger share of opinion in its favour, but is it just opinion? About the location of Eden, Genesis 2, verses 10 to 14, it was very specific. And the river went out of Eden to water the garden. And from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. There is Bdellium and the onyx stone, and the name of the second is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hittakel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And realised I'd gone uh, King James there. That's interesting. The word Eden in Hebrew means delight, luxury, or pleasure, as well as paradise. A similar word in Sumerian, Eden, and in Akkadian, Edenu, means plain, such as the flat area between the two rivers. The fourth river mentioned in Genesis, Euphrates, is easy to identify, so is Hittikel. It means river, and Hittikla, thus Hittikel, was another name for the Tigris. And its location was so clearly specified as going toward the east of Assyria, the old name of Iraq. This is why most people believe that Eden was located in the Tigris-Euphrates River Valley, or somewhere in present-day Iraq. The four specific geographical landmarks mentioned by the Bible are Ethiopia, Hittikel, Euphrates, and Assyria. All of these point to the location of Eden as being near the Tigris-Euphrates area. If ever the Garden of Eden was indeed in Iraq's territory, it would probably be buried deep under the huge land deposits left by the Great Flood. We do have strong evidence for the flooding of that entire region some 4,000 years ago. Babylon certainly is in the east too, assuming we're talking from the perspective of someone west of there. If Jerusalem is the navel of the earth to the biblical writers, then Babylon is certainly in the east. But identifying the rivers of Pishon and Gihon has puzzled researchers for many years. Pishon is supposed to encompass the gold-rich land of Havilah, and Gihon is supposed to run through the whole of Ethiopia. Is that supposed to be the Nile? But the Nile flows toward the Mediterranean and doesn't even touch Iraq. Are we supposed to assume that the Nile used to flow uphill out of Iraq before the flood? And the other issue is that the ancient inhabitants of the area, the Sumerians, actually thought Eden was west of them in what is now Bahrain. So they actually didn't claim to have the Garden of Eden within their borders. And you're a bit of a green thumb yourself, I know that, Tim. Ever thought of making your own Garden of Eden? Oh, mate, no, I've got dogs. So let's just say that if I made the Garden of Eden and my dogs treated it the way they treat my yard, there'd be an exile happening pretty quick with a flashing shovel spinning this way and that to guard the way back. Fair enough. So you don't like holes in your garden? No, no, I don't. Let's go to Assyria. Okay. There are a lot of people who don't realise that when we read beyond the book of Genesis, we do actually find additional references to a place called Eden. I've got some here. In Amos chapter 1, verse 5, I will break also the bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the plain of Avon and him that holdeth the scepter from the house of Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into captivity unto Kir, saith the Lord. In Isaiah thirty-seven twelve, Have the gods of the nations delivered them which my fathers have destroyed, as Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the children of Eden, which were in Telassar. And Ezekiel 27, verse 23. 
Haran and Kana and Eden, the merchants of Sheba, Asher and Kilmar, were thy merchants. Then, of course, Ezekiel 28, verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And Ezekiel 31, 16. I made the nations to shake at the sound of his fall when I cast him down to hell with them that descend into the pit. And all the trees of Eden, the choice and best of Lebanon, all that drink water shall be comforted in the nether parts of the earth. Here's the clincher. Every one of these passages has an Assyrian setting. This means that Eden was still around at the time the book of Ezekiel was written during the Babylonian exile. Isaiah speaks of the children of Eden as a nation that still existed, while Ezekiel suggests that Eden could be a merchant town. It's listed along with other locations situated in northern Mesopotamia, southern Anatolia, and the northern Levant. That's definitely Assyrian territory. This seems like a fairly strong hint that Eden should be located somewhere within this outline. Take another look at Ezekiel 31.16. According to this, Eden is in, or at least near, the land of Lebanon, a region well known for its cedars. Now you might be tempted to dismiss Ezekiel out of hand, because we've talked before about this Garden of Eden language from Ezekiel 28, which is well known as the so-called Fall of Satan passage. But I don't think we have good reason to suggest that the Garden of Eden was actually located in the city of Tyre. If we do read Ezekiel 28 as being a prophetic message relaying information from before the flood, we may be tempted to assume that the pre-flood setting negates the possibility that this could be the same Eden being spoken of in Ezekiel's day. But again, I don't think that conclusion is necessitated by the data. What we should be paying attention to is the fact that the city of Tyre, as a Phoenician coastal city, was actually part of the broader empire controlled by Assyria back in the day. Again, this is going to be a situation in which the hermeneutic that you bring to the flood narrative is going to impact the way that you read passages like this. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to cover the flood narrative as we proceed through future seasons of this podcast. But for the purposes of this argument, we'll assume that Eden still exists, at least as a geographical location, after the flood. I mean, if the Tigris and Euphrates can exist after the flood, why not a place called Eden? It doesn't have to be untouched by the flood to still be the same place. We get more support for an Assyrian location when identifying the proper etymology for the name Eden. Traditionally, scholars thought it was a Hebrew rendering of the Sumerian word Eden, which translates to plain or steppe. We could ask at this point, does anything in the biblical description of Eden make it sound like a grassy plain? Archaeology, however, has shown this word to be Aramaic in origin, a Semitic language, widely used to the north of ancient Israel and in ancient Lebanon and Syria. And if you've read my work, you know that there are good reasons why we can reasonably expect to find Aramaic words here and there in our Hebrew Bible. At Tel El Fakaria in modern-day Syria, on one of the tributaries of the Kabur River, just over 40 years ago in 1979, a statue was discovered containing a bilingual inscription dating to approximately the late 9th century BC. The statue provides the oldest evidence of the Aramaic language. Written on the skirt of the man, the bilingual inscription was inscribed in Assyrian cuneiform and the Semitic linear alphabet in an Aramaic dialect. It is this bilingual text that holds the key to the earliest identification and interpretation of the word Eden. Used as a verb, Eden corresponds to the Assyrian verb for wealth or luxuriance. So you can see how that overlaps considerably with the Hebrew usage where the Eden means delight. This translation reinforces the idea of paradise behind the Genesis narrative. Putting aside this extraordinary discovery, other Assyrian sources provided more clues to the location of Eden. 
Assyrian records have revealed the identification of an Aramean state that thrived between the 10th and 9th centuries BC. The name of this kingdom was Bit Ardini, or House of Eden, see Amos 1.5, and its capital was centred at Tilbarsip, or modern-day Tel Amar. Bit Ardini would be conquered and absorbed into the Neo-Assyrian Empire in 856 BC during the reign of Shalmaneser III who reigned between 859 to 824 BC. Located in Syria, Tilbarsip is located along the Euphrates River. Maybe now these passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah and the general location for Eden can come together. The inhabitants of Eden were kicked out by the Assyrians and exiled to the east. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 3.24, So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. Now, after becoming part of the Assyrian Empire, the once capital of the Edenites, Tilbarsip, was Assyrianized. It was decorated with beautiful art consisting of rosettes, royal processions, hunting scenes, even the Lamashu. The Lamashu, also referred to as Shedu and Akkadian Kurubu, was a divinity with the head of a man and the body of a bull. They typically stood as guardians, usually in the king's palace and throne room. These Lamashu are functionally the same as the Hebrew Kerubim. Cherubim. All this might seem like quite a lot of support for a location in ancient Assyria for the Garden of Eden, but I think there's even more when we consider the supernatural worldview of ancient Israel. But there's also a bit going against the idea of Assyria as the location for the Garden of Eden, and the main thing that stands out immediately is once again the problem of the rivers. And it's not a problem of finding four flowing rivers. We can point to them from east to west as the Tigris, the Nar al Kabur, the Balik River and the Euphrates. The problem is that we don't have a single river feeding all four. Maybe there was one in the past, and if the Jordan Rift Valley idea has any basis at all, it would equally work for this model as well. Your flood model is going to influence whether you think this is a credible proposition. So the floods are a pretty big deal then? Yeah, well, you know, depending on whether you think the flood is a global cataclysm or a significant regional event that had ongoing repercussions for human cultural memory, that's going to influence the way that you look at geological formations and decide whether or not they constitute evidence for your case. And as much as I think the biblical text ought to speak for itself on these matters, it seems that for most of us it's all too easy to bring our presuppositions or our faith traditions to the text and interpret the text through them, which is unfortunate, but that's the way we seem to be wired as humans. Hopefully if we can train ourselves to read the biblical text correctly, it's going to straighten out some of these issues and perhaps give us reason to pause and reevaluate our views. All right, then. Go on. Reevaluate my views, I dare you. <laughs> well, you might find this convincing, you might not. But our next option for consideration is, coincidentally, believed to be the same place where Noah's Ark wound up. And for some people, that seems to be evidence enough. I'll let you decide. We're going to look at Uratu. The argument for this location follows along similar lines to that of Assyria to the west. So this view really has the advantage, if you're really keen on Genesis 2.8 and the reference to the east, of being about as far east as you can be in the biblical world. So what that means in terms of worldview is that Eden would be situated at the outermost extreme of the known world, in a liminal space that's somehow inaccessible to the common man. This is where the mountains of Ararat in the flood narrative are located as well. You might call it the ends of the earth. As we've already seen, though, the Tigris and Euphrates are well known. The identities of the Gihon and Pajon have long been debated. 
One theory now identifies the Paishon as the Halas River that flows from the region of Uratu around Central Asia Minor and back into the Black Sea. In this theory, the Gaihon is identified as the Aras River flowing eastward from Uratu and into the Caspian Sea. That puts the Garden of Eden in a high mountain valley near Lake Van and explains how Eden is sometimes viewed as being on a mountain, for example in Ezekiel 28.14. Although to be fair, pretty much any location from Lebanon eastward could be considered mountainous. Some would object to the outward extremity of this location, but when we think in terms of cosmic geography, the actual latitude and longitude have no bearing whatsoever. Such a place could still be considered central, even the centre of the Earth, despite its location to the far north and east in real space. Remind me again what cosmic geography is. So cosmic geography is the way that we map the features of the unseen world over those of the natural that we perceive with our senses. Part of that's understanding the cosmology in terms of heaven and hell and the Earth itself as real places, even though a scientific analysis will not reveal anything about these ethereal or infernal places. It's also about concepts like sacred space, and that's exactly what Eden is all about. So when we think in terms of the significance of Eden and what made it so important, we're talking about identifying physical geography where God himself could have been encountered in person. Many people wouldn't understand this concept as a thing that could be physically grasped, but it's my understanding that what we call the natural world and the supernatural world are really not distinct, they're inseparable. The difference is in how they're perceived and the ways in which we interact with them. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. So where are we going next on this journey? Well, speaking of cosmic geography, for the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't get any more central than Jerusalem itself. The city of David is the place that God chose to be the centre of his rule through his human proxy, so it makes sense to view the place where God is as the centre of the cosmos, the centre of divine order. And with that framework in mind, you could call it the centre of the universe. This isn't a scientific understanding, it's a theological one. So if we permit ourselves to think outside of literal geographical terms, perhaps the holy city is the best candidate. Coincidentally, 1 Kings 1.33 mentions a spring near Jerusalem by the name of Gihon. The Hebrew name translates to bursting forth, which turns out to be a generic term that could describe just about any spring of water, so that one's out. And the rest of the four rivers don't really seem to have anything to do with Jerusalem at all, unless you consider the theory that proposes that the entire Jordan Rift Valley from the eastern shores of the Black Sea, through the Dead Sea, and out to the Gulf of Aqabar and the Red Sea, could have once been that great river from which all the others once flowed. And when we do that, perhaps we don't have to throw out our geography books after all. On this model, this mega river would have been the biblical Gihon River, which flows through the entire land of Cush, assuming that Cush is modern Ethiopia, as it cuts through just west of the Gulf of Aden, there's a familiar name, and down through northeastern Africa. This is obviously assuming some considerable continental drift as recently as 4,000 years ago. Again, that understanding is usually tied to the global flood cataclysm scenario. You generally don't see such rapid movement of tectonic plates in models that don't assume a global flood. But on this model, the Tigris and Euphrates, both originating today near the Black Sea, could have once been connected to the northeastern side of this rift valley, and that leaves us just looking for the Pison. So let's identify the geographical region of the Pison River. The Bible says Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and gives us two good clues. There is a recently discovered fossil river that runs from the western mountains of Saudi Arabia towards Kuwait. 
This old river course is now just a dry riverbed. It was detected by satellite imaging back in the 1980s. There has been lots of speculation that this may be the ancient Pison. It has been dry since about 3500 BC. This fossil riverbed that flows across Saudi Arabia had its origins in the mountains bordering the eastern side of the present-day Red Sea, south of Israel. It should be pointed out that those mountains are mirrored by another range of mountains on the western side of the Red Sea. The Red Sea is a tectonic spreading zone and part of the Great Rift system that runs from northward in Turkey down to the Dead Sea, along the length of the Red Sea, and then southward deep into the African continent. Obviously, when that mountain range was split by the rift, the source waters of the proposed Pison River would have dried up. But this proposed river path may be somewhat of a red herring because it doesn't seem to naturally fit the overall pattern. An even better fit may be for the river to have flowed down into what is today the Gulf of Aden south of present-day Yemen, the southern tip of Arabia. Yemen has both gold and onyx, which matches the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is bdellium and the onyx stone. And the eastward trending fault branch from the Afar Triangle, which is south of Yemen, would have been a natural riverbed in the days prior to Noah's flood when sea levels were lower than today. If this fossil river, referred to as the Q8 River, was indeed the Pison River, it does not correspond with the present-day headwater source of the Euphrates or Tigris up in Turkey. All four of these rivers have one thing in common, all are connected to the Great Rift system, and that is supposedly the solution to this problem. Two of the rivers of Eden were to the north of Israel, the active remnants of which presently originate out of Turkey to the north. The other two rivers of Eden were to the south of Israel. The geographical centre of these four points of flow is neither Turkey nor Kuwait. The centre is somewhere near the general region of present-day Israel and Jordan. By the way, it might be stating the obvious, but the Jordan Rift Valley runs on which side of Jerusalem? The east. Of course, the Achilles heel of this theory lies in the precise alignment required for this colossal river system to have all been connected all at the correct elevation, all flowing at the same time, and then somehow after the upheaval that caused the rift to dry up, the two major rivers to the north are now able to resume their flow from a new point of origin, while the southern rivers have disappeared. So what I like about this view is the fact that it does make an attempt to account for all four rivers, and there's also some correspondence to the mineral deposits that are mentioned in the text. As I mentioned before, whether you find this view convincing or not, it's really going to depend on your view of the flood and whether you're taking the flood account literally or figuratively, or if literally, then to what extent the flood changed the landscape. It would have been nice to have been able to show some kind of history for the two rivers that aren't flowing today so that we could trace them back to the scriptural account, but unfortunately we don't have evidence of names for them. And as a matter of fact, I'm not even sure that we have evidence that there ever was a river flowing from Turkey right down through Ethiopia. It seems to be just a theory, and it may or may not hold water, pun intended. Okay, so it kind of seems like the major thing that this view has going for it is the worldview aspect, you know, because Jews and Christians want Jerusalem to be the centre of everything, but the physical location seems to be somewhat problematic. Yeah, I do think it has some issues, but as we pointed out, it does have some strengths too, so we can't throw it out just yet, but we've got another interesting candidate to look at. The Persian Gulf. All right, so... Right off the bat, we've got half of the rivers already picked out. No problem with the Euphrates, no problem with the Tigris. They are where they are, and that's okay. The Q8 River, as we discussed earlier, is thrown in here as the Pishon. But things take a different flavour as we attempt to identify the Gihon River that went through the land of Kush. 
The land of Kush, through which the Gihon River is stated to have wound, is most often used in the Bible of the region south of Egypt, i.e. Nubia or Ethiopia. In ancient times, there was also another land of Kush, which lay to the east of Mesopotamia in what is today western Iran. The Nimrod pericope in Genesis 10 verses 8 to 12 connects this name unmistakably with Mesopotamia by assigning it to the father of the giant who is said to have founded a number of Babylonian and Assyrian capitals. This particular Cush is the home of the Kassites who later conquered Babylon and ruled Babylonia from 1500 to 1150 BC. Today, two major rivers flow from the Iranian mountains in the east down to the southern part of the Mesopotamian floodplain, and these are the Kirka and Karun, the latter joining uh, Shat al-Arab, about 50 kilometres north of the Persian Gulf, while Kirka, or ancient Caspis, flows past the site of ancient Susa, down to the marshes north of Shat al-Arab. The Samaritan version actually renders Gihon, the name of the river of Kush, by Askop, evidently the Caspis, modern Kirka. Owing to variations of the river flows, changes of the sea level prior to the 3rd millennium BC and the marshy floodplain in southern Iraq, the lower courses of these rivers have changed considerably since ancient times. It is even possible that the two adjacent rivers amalgamated into one river before reaching the Gulf area. In case you weren't familiar with it, the Shat al-Arab is actually the convergence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which flows as one river into the Persian Gulf. That means that all four of the rivers named in Genesis 2 could have in fact converged into a single river that flowed into a region that in ages past was not submerged beneath the waters of the Persian Gulf, that was in fact a lush, verdant food bowl oasis in the desert. Again, this view may be impacted by a flood model, so keep that in mind, but you might already have one major objection to this view, and that is that these rivers all flowed downstream into the Persian Gulf. So as they converge into a single river, that is in fact four rivers becoming one, not one river becoming four. Nevertheless, the proponents of this view think they have the answer, and what they propose is the idea that we might actually be looking at this whole thing backwards. The leading proponent of this view is the seriologist E.A. Spicer. In his view, the upper reaches of the river should be called the headwaters. You can see this in some translations. So he's saying that it's not the spring itself where the water wells up out of the ground that's called the head but the extent of the stream that is upstream of its convergence with another tributary that we should be calling the headwaters. To put it another way, try to think of a river as going from the sea up to the mountain. And as we go upstream, the river branches off into smaller rivers. And each of these rivers are the heads or headwaters, according to Spicer. Spicer claims support for this interpretation from both Hebrew and Akkadian usage. However, he doesn't produce any examples of the Hebrew. So that was his view of the upper reaches of river systems. Now let's look at the lower parts. Pretty much universally, the lower extremity of the river is called the mouth. But what Spicer is talking about is the stretch of river below the point of convergence with another river. The lower reaches of the stream between the convergence and the mouth. Spicer claims that this is referred to in Hebrew by use of the word katseh. To try and illustrate the point, some verses used to defend this view come from the book of Joshua. Chapter 15, verse 5, and chapter 18, verse 19. But here's where Spicer falls apart. Those examples from Joshua make it very clear that they're referring to the actual river mouth. It's the bay at the north end of the Dead Sea where the Jordan River flows in. It's not the length of the Jordan. It's a single point. And that got me thinking. If Spicer is clearly wrong about the mouth of the river, citing examples that don't even work in his favour, 
what are we likely to find when we examine his theory on the headwaters? So I checked every example in the Bible, every reference to a river. There are a few examples of the river mouth, like what I just mentioned, but in all scripture, there's only one solitary occasion where the term for head is used in reference to any part of a river. It's Genesis 2.10, and the Hebrew doesn't have headwaters. It says heads. A head is always the high point, not the upper half. It's the top. And it defies credulity that any ancient Israelite couldn't identify a fork in the river as the head of a new river or couldn't tell which way the water was flowing. The scripture is clear. The river flowed out from Eden, not into it. And from there it divided, rather than merging together, into four heads, not from four tributaries descending into a common stream. The heads are just the beginning points for these four rivers, not the whole rivers themselves. Well, that's all we have time for this week, um, even though we really do want to sing uh, Boney M by the Rivers of Babylon. We'll return to this topic soon, and who knows, are we going to end up with a lock on the real Garden of Eden, are we? Well, i got a feeling we might end up with a lock on Boney M. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as I say, this is going to take us into some interesting places, and when we do come back to Eden, it will be something perhaps unexpected, but not at all unrelated to the groundwork we've laid today and indeed throughout the entire podcast to date in the meantime though next week we're talking about the trees of eden and after that we're going to have a conversation with a special guest anyway that's all coming up soon on the answers to giant questions podcast so stick around i want to hear your giant questions if you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else something you found in your bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large here's how you do it Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. We have a question this week that sounds like it was probably sent in after somebody watched Eternals. I know you enjoyed that movie a lot more than I did, Tim. Uh, in fact, it actually <laughs> came did. from more than, uh, <laughs> more than one person. We actually got a couple of people asking, and they want to know, who was Gilgamesh? Okay, well, I'll tackle this one quickly, but we'll try to go beyond what anyone can get from a quick look on Wikipedia anyway. Gilgamesh is the main character in a series of Sumerian poems from over 4,000 years ago. Gilgamesh also appears in the Sumerian king list. And there's some debate over whether he was real or not, whether he was divine or not, and whether he was a giant or not. And the answer to all of those questions is yes. Okay, and some people have also said that Gilgamesh was actually... Nimrod from the Bible. Is that true? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, I guess that's what happens when you try and put all the eggs of history into one biblical basket. Yeah, that's right. There are people around who seem to think that if everything in the Bible is true, then the Bible must contain all truth. Therefore, if anything is true, you should be able to find it in your KJV. And that's terrible logic. But anyway, I do think Gilgamesh was real. And while his story was known by Jews in the Second Temple period, and they named him in the Book of the Giants... He was definitely not a biblical character. Gilgamesh is best known from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is originally an arrangement of those early poems about him and over the years became one more or less cohesive story. I'm not going to tell the story here because a translation of it from the Neo-Babylonian source material comes out at about 50 pages in length. But 50 pages actually isn't a huge read, so if you're looking for a cool story you can digest in a few spare hours, then it's worth your time. You can get translations for free online. One thing about the story I will talk about here because it's relevant to today's study on Eden and it will be relevant again next week. 
Gilgamesh and his best mate Enkidu go on a quest to find and kill the guardian of the Cedar Forest, whose name is Humbaba. There have been attempts to connect Humbaba with the god of the Bible, suggesting that Yahweh might have connections to Humbaba linguistically. I wouldn't put too much faith in it. Anyway, they go into the mountains of Lebanon to find the Cedar Forest, where they confront and kill Humbaba. And the act of killing Humbaba is told in terms of the cutting down of a tree, a cedar whose top reaches the sky. Where have we heard language like that before? Ah, yes. Remember when we talked earlier about Ezekiel chapter 31? Ezekiel 31 verse 3. Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches and with a shadowing shroud and of a high stature and his top was among the thick boughs. And we keep going. Anyway, the point is that this Humbaba is definitely a god and definitely not the god Yahweh Elohim. As I say, we'll be looking at this stuff more next week, so we'll move on. Back to Gilgamesh. He's a king, he's a tyrant, and he's a giant. He's got divine and human parents, and this is in a post-flood context. So according to the biblical paradigm, he'd be Rephaim, not Nephilim. The text says he's 11 cubits tall. That's 16 and a half feet for those counting at home, according to the common cubit. And for those prone to exaggeration, no, the Sumerians and Babylonians did not use Egyptian cubits. So would Thor really beat him in a fight, like in the comics? Yes. Can he fly? No. Is he an eternal? Definitely not. Okay. After the whole episode. (laughs) (laughs) After the whole episode with Humbaba, the gods decide Enkidu has to die. So that happens. And then Gilgamesh has this existential crisis and tries to find a way to become immortal. Epic quest ensues and Gilgamesh meets Utanapishtim the ancient Sumerian equivalent of Noah, who survived the Great Flood. Because Utanapishtim survived the Flood, the gods granted him immortality. But Gilgamesh gets told, that ship sailed, his chicken has flown the coop, yes, we have no bananas, and you're going to die. So just enjoy your life and try to be remembered for your achievements after your compost. There's a lot more to it, and it's a really great read with a lot of stuff that'll be familiar to Bible readers in there too, such as a snake that makes sure Gilgamesh loses his chance to eat from a plant that might have extended his life. Genesis 3, anyone? Oh, and spoilers, now that he's dead, Gilgamesh exists as a demon, according to the biblical understanding of the Rephaim kings. So he's in Sheol, right next door to hell. I had to get one last Guns and Roses joke in there. Of course you did. Before we wrap it up, there's one last thing that I want to address. Because of the work that I've done in the past, I'm now in a position where from time to time I'm able to make judgments on particular issues that people might raise relevant to my experience. In a way... That means that I can be considered as an authority on the subject matter that I have experience with. Sometimes people approach me as an authority on a particular subject because they're looking for a judgment or a ruling on a particular issue. And it's my prior experience, the work that I've done in the past, that enables me to be prepared to make such a ruling. So when my good friend Josh sent me a question, it wasn't just him throwing thoughts out into the atmosphere. He was approaching someone as an authority to make a judgment on the matter, to guide him and to show him the correct interpretation. Now, Josh is a mate, so I'm sure he won't mind me giving him a gentle ribbing here, and I say this with tongue firmly in cheek. But I'm actually answering his question right now before I even tell you what the question is. So, what was the question? Josh asks, In Genesis 6.3, do you think abide with or contend with or some other meaning is closest to the Hebrew meaning in context? And this is the verse, Then the Lord said, 
My spirit shall not abide in man for ever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Right, so that is obviously one of the verses from the short uh, passage about the Nephilim. Okay, so I've actually answered Josh's question before even asking it. And now having asked the question, I'm going to have to explain my answer. And before we go any further, no, I'm not really that full of myself. I'm just making a point. And I don't think that I'm all that in a bag of chips because I have so much yet to learn. And I'm looking forward to that experience very much. In biblical times, if you had a difficult matter to settle, you went to the city gate. And there, you would find the wise men and the rulers of the city sitting in judgment. That doesn't mean that they made snarky comments about people as they walked past. Where does he think he's going with that stupid hat? It means they were considered the authority on all kinds of matters because of their life experience, because of the work they had done in the past. So when you needed the benefit of wisdom to guide you in your actions, you would go and put your case before the judges. They would listen, and then they would pronounce the judgment or offer their advice. Kings in the Bible are also talked about as being seated in a position of authority that enables them to deal with any situations that may arise because of the work that they had put in previously to secure order in the kingdom. And the language used to describe being in such a position is rest. We've talked about this before on the podcast, so you should be familiar from the wrap-up of our discussion on Genesis 1 and creation. But for those who came in late, let's just say that the reason God rests on the seventh day is because he's already done the work and now he's in a position to run things without lifting a finger. Likewise, to be in a position of judgment is also considered to be at rest, but there's a slightly different term used in order to convey the idea that this is about wisdom, discernment, and judgment rather than sovereignty. The Hebrew word is din, and it's specifically used in the context of sitting in judgment or making a decision. This word appears in scripture 24 times, and it always carries the same connotation. And this is the word that we find in Genesis 6 verse 3, translated as abide, or perhaps rendered as contend. So why is it that in Genesis 6 verse 3 we have such diverse terminology used to render this Hebrew term in different translations? When I think of the word abide, I normally think of that old hymn, Abide With Me. Naturally, the trouble is, because we don't have an English word that sums up the entirety of what the Hebrew word means in a single word or phrase, so on the one hand we have terms like abide or dwell or remain because the idea being conveyed is one of rest. But we also have the other associated idea, which is that there's some kind of conflict or dispute or striving that requires resolution by judgment or decree. And this is complicated further when we recognize that all this activity is occurring within the hearts of men empowered by the Spirit of God. So there is a sense in which this must be recognized as both a position of command and an internal struggle. So when the scripture says, And God said, My spirit shall not deen in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. We should be picking up on this idea of a kind of seated position of authority from which God's Spirit provides the benefit of his judgment or wisdom for the purpose of guidance in righteousness to resolve a conflict. And this is where the Nephilim posed a serious problem. The Nephilim were not made to represent God at all. They were born to represent the rebellious sons of God who fathered them. So what interest would they have in following the judgments of God or respecting his wisdom and guidance? What connection did they have to the Spirit of God? And the Nephilim proceeded to corrupt the entire human race in their biology, their behavior, and their allegiance. And this is, of course, what prompted God to act to save humanity. Now, I won't go into the rest of the verse because it deserves its own treatment, which we will get to in due course. But what we should be seeing here is the internal conflict created within people when external forces are exerting immense pressure to corrupt the individual from within. And that is the power of culture, in particular, a culture dominated by violence, which explains the need for an entire civilization to be dealt with so severely. 
This all ties in with the idea of man as image bearers of God, because God breathed into the man the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And this is what we were reading last week. So God gives us the ability to choose to live rightly by listening to his voice when he passes judgment and by consulting with him for the benefit of our guidance. When we take his advice, when we respect his judgments, when we listen to his voice, that is how we live as his representatives, but doing what he would have us do. I bet Josh had no idea that when he asked me the question, he was participating in an example of the answer to his question. That's kind of funny. Now, of course, if you'd like your own questions answered, you can send them in to me at the podcast. Just go onto the website, giantanswers.com, and we'll hook you up. And I promise I won't use it as an opportunity to aggrandize myself at your expense, like I just did to my buddy Josh. Well, all right, we'd better wrap it up, but I can't wait for next week already. See you then. See you next time. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help, but a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. God bless. Help of the helpless, Lord, abide with me. Don't you cry telling you that you could sing last week.